These podiums aren't big enough for all my paper. Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as believers. Lord, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you've called us to holiness and that you've given us the ability to become holy. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the unity that your word provides for us. Um, And we just ask that you would open your word to us this morning, that you open our minds, that you would give us the ability to uh, hear, understand, and retain the knowledge that would bring us to holiness. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, We are on the fourth week of our study in discipleship, and just to start out, let's, let's review where we've been. So week one, we started out by setting out a definition of discipleship, and we defined it as the intentional encouragement of Christians on the basis of deliberate, loving relationships and training in God's Word. Uh, Intentional or deliberate is the operative word here. It doesn't happen passively. Uh, And we also talked about how uh, we will become, as we disciple, the conduit for truth and passing it on to others, uh, passing on to others what God has given us. Week two, we thought about the reasons that we should disciple. Those two reasons were for, the, for our own joy and for God's glory. We were surprised by the first reason because we would have assumed that having joy in this might be a bit selfish. But we saw from Paul's example that he found great joy in the fruit of discipling that came from his work um, and the ministry of others. We also... Uh, We also wanted to be careful not to make this about us, seeking our own joy, uh, but to put our focus in the right place, which is on God's glory. Uh, He is the one who will sow the seed in people's hearts, so also he will reap the harvest. Uh, We simply are privileged to be a means that God uses uh, to help others. Week three, we thought about the barriers and excuses and fears in discipling. Uh, Nick reminded us that uh, uh, some of those fears include not wanting to be in a position of authority or not finding the time to do it. Um, In in each case, uh, we came to see how the, the Bible dismantles those excuses and fears and redirects us to live without excuses. Um, so for the next few weeks, we're going to digging a little deeper. We're going to narrow our focus a bit, and we're going to study specifically on the aspects of discipling, like studying scripture together, reading a good book together, ministering and uh, and ministering to hurting people. Um, So we're going to take it from its broader concept down to um, a rubber-meets-the-road level, and how does this work itself out in our one-on-one discipleship. Today though, uh, today, though, we're going to look at how discipling can engender post- personal holiness in the lives of both, the people in, of both people in the discipling relationship. So the goal today would be for, that we would come away with an understanding that the place, 
that the place that holiness has in a discipleship relationship is that we together, uh, is that we think together, and that we think together practically at how we can encourage personal holiness in each other. Um, So, the the ultimate goal, if you're following along on your, your handout here, the ultimate goal of of discipling is obedience to God. What is obedience to God? Well, practically speaking, that is holiness. So, we are, we are only as holy, or we are only holy to the extent that we are obedient to God's commands, right? We think of... Uh, this word holiness and it becomes this big giant word that we kind of we can't handle um, because we see it as something that's unattainable right God is holy we can't attain that type of holiness but what is holiness and what is God's idea of holiness for mankind we look throughout I mean we look throughout the scriptures at the examples where God uh, calls us to holiness his his continual Uh, rebuke of Israel in the Old Testament as he continually calls Israel to be separated separate from the world that is essentially especially in the Hebrew that is essentially what holiness means it means to be completely separate from something else so God was calling his people to be separated from the world we look at Malachi the final uh, God's final word to his people before the arrival of Christ in his rebuke of the leaders of Israel in that they had, they had forsaken their holiness. They had allowed the church, they had allowed his people to, to uh, look like the world. They had lost their holiness. We look at Jesus' letters, the final book in the Bible where Jesus writes the letters to the seven churches. What is his appeal to those churches? What is his rebuke to those churches? That they, again, had lost their holiness. They had become like the world, at least in some respects, inside the body of Christ. They had allowed worldliness to come into their ranks and had even embraced it to some extent and therefore had lost holiness. That's God's desire for us is that we be separate from the world that he has saved us from. So there's no more important theme in the Bible than holiness. Holiness as the body of Christ, as the church, the purity of the body of Christ. Uh, As we prepare for the return of the groom, that we may be presented spotless, blameless before the groom. But also personal holiness because after all the church the the bride of Christ is made up of individuals so there is a call on each of us individually to be holy well how does that play out how do we become holy well that brings us to what we're studying in the first place which is discipleship so discipleship is an incredibly uh, important tool that God uses um, in in bringing us to holiness. So, we can't overemphasize um, the importance of seeking 
and, and, and going after holiness in our own lives. Uh, why? What is the importance of, of holiness? Well, the first reason is that it brings glory to God. As we become more holy, our lives reflect God's holiness. And we, as ambassadors to Christ, reflect that holiness to a lost world. God is glorified in our lives as we display his character to the world around us. Not only by what we say, but how we live. If we call ourselves Christians, but live in a way that is clearly contrary to God's character, then we, mis- uh, we misrepresent God to those around us. And as we'll see in a minute... Um, If we're not living a life in pursuit of holiness, we prove that we are either deceived in that we think we're Christians, but because there's a lack of pursuit of holiness, it proves that we're we're either deceived or we're deceiving others um, intentionally. We look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, And this is my prayer, that you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is, what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Why is Paul so eager for their love for Christ to grow and abound? Note the connector so that uh, that connector denotes that the purpose is coming afterwards so that they can discern what is best so they can uh, say no to sin essentially and be pure and blameless that's the purpose Um, which is to say so that they may be holy what is the overarching goal of these things to the glory and praise of God again what you see is greater love resulting in greater obedience. The two are inextricably linked. Um, You know, just to stop and point out, too, that this makes sense. And it's one of, uh, we'll talk of a few paradoxes that exist in a Christian's life, but to me, this seems like one as well. So, true love, you think about it in the context of a marriage, easier for us to understand. Um, our love for our spouse, any, for, for those that have been married for 10 years or more, we can look at our marriage and we can say, I love my wife more today than I loved her the day I married her. I love my husband more today than I loved her, him the, the day I married him. Why? Because we know more about them. Um, so the correlation is, is as our knowledge of the subject increases, so does our love for that subject. So love and our knowledge are inextricably uh, linked. But what's weird is, though, we won't seek, that paradox is, is we won't seek that knowledge about something without an initial love for that. Right? So there's an intentional pursuit of knowledge because we have an interest in it, because we have... We want to know more about it. I was drawn to my wife. I entered into my covenant with my wife because I was drawn to her. Um, I loved her. I did, in fact, love her. 
And it was that love that, that, that prompted me to know more about her. And as I knew more about her, I loved her even more. Uh, so it's a perpetual, uh, perpetual thing. So in, in, in terms of our, our relationship with Christ and our holy, seeking our holiness, we seek more knowledge about Christ. Why? Because we love him. But why do we love him? Well, the Bible says because he first loved us. So we were drawn to him. He gave us, the Spirit, Holy Spirit gave us the ability to know truth and to know our Savior. And it's that love that initiates a need to know more about that Savior. And as we grow in our knowledge about that Savior, so does our love for that Savior. Which in turn leads to an increased desire to obey that Savior. So when Jesus Christ says to his disciples, if you love me, you will abide in me. If you love me, you will obey my commands. He wasn't giving them uh, instruction. He, he was saying, if he, he was explaining the truth of the matter. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Um, so, If the way we live commends the gospel that we profess, then we will bring glory to God and provide a powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. Regeneration is finally and always about glorifying God. So secondly, uh, obedience is important, or holiness is important, and we talked about this just a minute ago, but we'll... Uh, kind of expand on it. It's important because it marks a true Christian. Obedience springs forth from those who love God. Again, that love is initiated by God, but it is that love that drives obedience and drives the increased knowledge about our Savior. Jonathan Edwards spent a great deal of time considering all the marks of conversion that attend the work of the Spirit in the Great Awakening. In the end, he finally concluded that growth in personal holiness over time was the most universal and most reliable evidence of true work of the Spirit. It's the same for today. An internal change, a love for Christ, should manifest itself, should manifest itself in, in an external change of life uh, or greater obedience, holiness. We think about John 14, 15. If you, and, and I've already referenced this scripture, if you love me, you will obey my command. There's an inescapable link between our love for Christ and our obedience to Christ. Our love for Christ births in us a desire to please him. If we, truly regener if we are truly regenerate and have the Holy Spirit living, living in us, our greatest desire will be to do Christ's will. 1 John 1, 3 through 6, we proclaim to you that... We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So how do we know we are in Christ? Well, by our obedience, by our increasing obedience, by our desire to be obedient. 
What does John say about the person who says, I know Christ, but yet his life doesn't look like obedience, does not look like increased obedience? Well, he says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. That may sound harsh, uh, but it's important for us to know that the final test, the litmus test for Christianity, is a marked change in his behavior, in his life, in his, what he chooses to surround himself, and an, in, an increasing personal holiness. So is it, there is an immediate change. But there is an ongoing change as he is being conformed to the image of Christ for the rest of his life. Uh, this means that the one reason we want to help someone else live a life that is characterized by greater obedience is because that obedience will give him an opportunity to show the love they, uh, that they have for God, providing assurance for their salvation. So again, if we're, if we're, finding, if we're finding our assurance of our salvation in the ever-increasing holiness in our own life, it gives us confidence, and we want confidence in our own salvation. It brings joy. So obviously that obedience does not make them a Christian, but it shows us about what resides in their heart. If someone is a Christian, then they will obey God. Uh, that's true, and yet part of your responsibility as a disciple is to help them grow in their obedience to God. What's the point, you say? They're going to do it. In, they're, going to, they're going to grow anyway because, again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So why do we have to be engaged in this? Why don't we just let the Holy Spirit do his work? Um, This is true. God will cause his true children to produce fruit. And yet, perhaps God can use you to help bring about that fruit of obedience. Uh, you can be the means, and you should be the means, by which God uses to help foster greater obedience in their life. Uh, in addition, it's important for us to realize that we're not aiming merely for external changes, nor mere internal theological knowledge. We're aiming to encourage an internal growth and knowledge that spills over into more godly living, greater love for Christians and the lost, and a holiness of life that evidences a changed and maturing heart. Truth is no good if it lives in an ivory tower. It must evidence itself in the way it changes the life of those who hold it. Um, there is a paradox here, if you caught it, um, and it is that God is the initiator of the work. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who cr produces the change in a Christian. So he is sovereign over, God is sovereign over this process of sanctification in a Christian's life. But we're still called to be involved. We're still the tool by which God does his work. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> but I know we're called to make disciples. You know, I, I, was, I was reminded of a story, you know, as I looked at and tried to deal with the truth of God's sovereignty in all things. 
in the responsibility of man's will, man's free will, in accomplishing God's will on earth. And I was reminded of the story in, in Acts chapter 27 where Paul is being returned, his final journey to, to Rome uh, when he had appealed to Caesar. Uh, he was under arrest and he's traveling back to Rome on this ship. And um, the ship has lost all ability to guide itself, is in a horrible storm. Is, um, and there are hundreds of men on this ship. Including, including the crew of the ship, including uh, Roman guards who were uh, guarding Paul and including other, other uh, prisoners as well. Um, Luke was on that ship as well, and he, and he writes the account of this. And, 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 and Luke tells us of this encounter as they are being tossed about by the seas and all hope has been lost on the ship of anybody being saved. And Paul has a vision from God. And he is promised by God that no one's life on the ship, no, no life would be lost. That's a promise from God. His will has been stated. It will not be thwart, thwarted. But yet, and, and Paul goes and encourages the crew and tells them that, look, nobody's going to lose their life. But yet when... When some of the ship hands try to lower the dinghies and try to escape the ship as it's being crushed against the rocks, Paul admonishes them and, and, and warns them, if you leave this ship, many will die. So there was this, there's this statement of God's will that cannot be thwarted, but yet there was still a responsibility of man to obey and to, do his, to use his free will to accomplish God's will. So I... I can apprehend that truth. I cannot comprehend it. <laughs> uh, but it is true. So God uses us as the means by which, uh, or at least to, in part, help us in this process of sanctification, not only in our own life, but in others' life through discipleship. So, um, are there any questions at this point? Anything maybe that... Uh, you've noted that should be pointed out before we move on? All right, everybody was, was, was giving input when Nick was teaching, so y'all got to speak up if you got something. Help me out. All right, so let's move on. So encouraging holiness in the disciple. So how is it that we encourage holiness in the life of someone we're discipling? Let's start by differentiating between what happens immediately and what becomes a gradual process in, uh, when someone becomes a Christian. <clears throat> so we've used these words like progressive sanctification, um, the, the ongoing pursuit of holiness in one's life. We've talked about it being an evidence of a true conversion, a true regeneration in the Christian. Uh, and we've talked about holiness in, in, in God's... Uh, the requirement of his people to be holy. So what it, it's easy for us to, um, when someone claims to have a conversion experience, to immediately expect um, perfect holiness um, in their life. As if the habits that the day before were in their life would somehow just disappear overnight overnight 
the moment they, they come to know the truth and come to know Christ. Um, and I'm here to say that's an unreasonable expectation. We, we know that by looking at our own lives. If we're all honest with ourselves, regardless of how long you have been in Christ, you can look at your own life and you can identify areas that you, you know are not holy. And they are, they are remnants from your formal, former lost life. So we cannot have the expectation of perfect holiness upon salvation. So in our discipleship relationship, we have to keep that in mind and we have to um, understand that as the Holy Spirit does this work, that there will be an increasing holiness, but not the expectation of immediate, complete holiness. John uh, chapter 5, verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So this is what I would call the first sanctification. Um, I heard this preached this way. I think Vody Bauckham, uh, one of the more influential preachers in my life, is, talks about the three sanctifications in a believer's life. So there's the initial sanctification in every believer's life, where, as we just showed in John chapter 5, there's an immediate change in status in a person's life. <clears throat> they have gone from death to life. The, before, their, the trajectory of their life was heading toward death, eternal death. And upon salvation, immediately their destination is changed. They are now headed to eternal life, to glory, with Christ, the one who has saved him. So that is a real and effectual change. It's immediate upon salvation and cannot be changed or altered. The second salvation, or the second sanctification, excuse me, um, is this what we call and what we're talking about is ongoing uh, progressive sanctification. Um, and I'll read in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Paul talks about this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So there's this contrast, there's this contradiction in a person's life upon salvation. Our spirit, our eternal future has been secured. There is that initial change, effectual change. But now... We've been given a, a heart of flesh. We have a desire for Christ. We have a spirit 
that desires Christ and, des- and desires to be made in the image of Christ, but we have a flesh that is still fallen. Paul is not saying here in Galatians that upon salvation or, or that before salvation your life is marked by all of these sins. And after salvation, you leave all of those behind and they are not evident in any, at any extent in your life. But he is saying that the Spirit will desire these things once it's saved. Uh, love, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And the, the imperative here is that we pursue those things, that we attend to and understand, be aware of the contradiction in our life now, that our spirit is drawn toward these things and our flesh is drawn toward that first list. And in knowing that, we can be intentional about walking in the spirit, denying the flesh, When a person is converted, his identity changes. He is newly justified, newly converted disciple of Christ. He is no longer what he once was, but now he has a new status, a new life, a new joy in Christ. This does not mean, though, that all of his bad habits, again, or cravings are magically vanished. Look closely sometime at Romans chapter 6. It's a wonderful passage about the, the Christian's power over sin. It's interesting to see, though, that Paul never says a word about temptation being taken away. The same idea spoken of in, in Galatians, the passage that we just read. Even after we are Christians, the sinful nature still wars against us. As Christians, though, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us increasingly defeat sin. Disciples often go about things in a backwards way. We often want to see those bad habits, cravings, and disappear immediately in those we are discipling. We can't expect that. Expect to see God's Spirit working effectively to take those cravings away. Um, But it's going to happen over a period of time. Rather, what we should be looking for in those that we're discipling is the growing character of Christ, which can be defined as moral strength or constitution. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 4, tells us how character is developed. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Uh, It's in our hardships and struggles, even with sin, that God is developing character in us. And why does character produce hope? Because as we see in God's unfailing faithfulness in bringing us through hardship, we uh, we learn to rely on him more and more. Remember, the goal here is not behavior modification because that will never achieve the goals we have of bringing glory to God and providing assurance of salvation. Your goal is to gently and lovingly work to help strengthen the moral character of the person you are discipling so that on their way, on on their own, they can joyfully live life to the pleasure and glory of God. So very practically... Uh, How do we encourage holiness in the lives of those we disciple? So this is how it works out in your your weekly, your daily uh, discipleship with another person. Uh, First and foremost, we pray. 
We pray that God would give us an insight into our own and, and, to, and into their struggles with sin and wisdom regarding how, uh, and we pray for wisdom on how to help them uh, out of those struggles. So prayer is a big part of our discipleship. Second, we make sure that we discuss models of obedience in, in Scripture and in various biblical commands. You also discuss um, how our lives, we also discuss how our lives compare. Um, the Bible is the best diagnostic tool you have to help that other person see sin in their life. Use it. To expand on that a little bit, I mean, we've already discussed that it is truth about Christ, our Savior. It's the knowledge of that truth that increases, that drives our love for that Savior. And that love, in turn, produces holiness in our own life. That's what we want to encourage in our, our brother or sister's life. We want, to encur- we want to encourage love for the Savior that saved them. We do that through the means of Scripture, the truth about that Savior that saved them. So as their knowledge of that Savior increases, their love increases and their desire to be obedient increases and their life becomes more holy. Third, we do not shy away from sharing concerns uh, that we may have about various aspects of their lives. This is the hard part. This is the admonishing part um, that we tend to avoid at all costs because it's uncomfortable. We don't like being called out and, and we don't like calling other people out. We don't want to be offended. Sometimes sin is clear and it's our job as disciple, disciple makers. It's our job to confront our brothers and sisters with the sin that is obvious in their life. Um, we can't just trust that they're aware of it. Um, and even if they are aware of it, we know from our own experience with our own sin that we're really good at ignoring it. And if you've ever been admonished by another brother or sister in Christ, you know the effects of being called out by another believer. The Holy Spirit will use that and convict the sinner. And it's that conviction that it's, it's the confrontation of the other believer that forces the recognition of that conviction. And that conviction is what will drive repentance. And then we get the joy as a brother or sister to walk through that repentance and guide them out of whatever that behavior was that was dishonoring to God. All right. I got the five-minute hand here, so we're going <laughs> to speed up. <clears throat> Um, sometimes the issue is not that the state of their heart uh, is unclear it's that their action is not necessarily sinful but merely unwise this seems to crop up a lot in relationships uh, who we choose to have relationships with especially younger folks who are not married and have the protection of marriage 
um, could come up in issues with finances in our own life. That's a big one, especially after you're married. Perhaps we're spending too much time alone and are exposing ourselves to sexual temptation. Perhaps we spend uh, lavishly on things that seem somewhat foolish when looked at through the wisdom of the Bible. Um, Obviously, we as the discipler are not the other person's parent, um, nor are we their thought police, policing every thought they have. But as someone who also is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it's good to share with them the wisdom and experience that God has given us. Remind them that our goal as Christians is not simply to avoid sin, but to seek obedience and wisdom, holiness. And warn them of the potential consequences of disregarding whatever unwise practice is in their life. Knowing that that unwise uh, practice will become a distraction and a derailment from their pursuit of holiness. Fourth, to the extent that God is doing good things in your life, do not shy away from holding yourself out as an example. Uh, Paul, continually through his letters to his churches, um, is reminding them to, to mimic his own faith. He, he sets himself up as an example for them to follow. And I tell you, as the one doing the discipling, when you do that, mere pressure that the, the pressure that that puts on you to model that holiness in your own life is going to bless you as much as it blesses them or more fifth try as much as possible to ensure that whoever you disciple is under the authority of the local church again this is one of those that cannot be overemphasized um, that our faith is not worked at a, out at a practical level on an island um Yes, someone can come to, the, come to salvation, come to the saving knowledge of Christ alone. They can. Um, but this, this progressive sanctification doesn't happen on an island. Um, it's aided, it's driven by interaction, the, 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 the um, iron sharpening iron, the clash the, uh, of, of believers against believers. Discipling is a, is a key and integral tool that the Lord uses to produce holiness in the individual, and again, the ultimate goal is holiness in the bride of Christ, which will bring glory to Christ himself, and in turn, giving glory to God. Um, I'm going to stop there, because I'm sure we're right at the the line there. Is there there any questions, any comments um, about holiness, about holiness and discipleship on either end on the discipler or the one being disciple Yeah, so again, you cannot over, overemphasize the importance of the church, and you're right. Um, and, and I'll note as well, the church being the bride of Christ, Christ has 
told us how jealous he is of his bride, how much he loves his bride, how much he cherishes her, and how much he will protect her. In turn, as our love for Christ increases through our knowledge, our love for the bride will increase. And we will want to fellowship with other believers. And also, in the bride of Christ, Christ himself has set up discipleship, discipleship being one of them, mechanisms to increase personal holiness. And we've talked briefly about some of those, but discipleship is at the heart of it. And Matthew 18, church discipline, in the most extreme cases of uh, unwise or sinful behavior in a, un, in a believer, the church has mechanisms to, to bring that individual out of. And those are mechanisms that, <clears throat> that don't exist outside of the organized body of believers. So thank you, Ben, for reemphasizing the importance of the church in this. I wish I could share my testimony personally with uh, uh, discipleship. Maybe one day uh, I will get to. Um, but discipleship has become a central theme to my life and uh, is one of the most important things uh, in my life. There's this ongoing need to be connected intimately with other men um, because I know the importance of protection for me and my holiness. But there's also, because of discipleship that was displayed to me, an ongoing indebtedness um, to, to Christ to do that for other men. Um, so, uh, again, I hope you were, were blessed by the truth that was shared today, and I hope that it will help you in your becoming a disciple. Yes, Mike. I don't think I can add anything to that, Mike. You, you said it perfectly. All right. Well, let, me, let, me, let me close this in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I am extremely humbled um, by the task of uh, even beginning to uh, unpack the truths that you have laid before us here, Lord. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to just speak about those truths. And, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be impacted by these lessons on discipleship and it would drive us to be better at it. Um, Father, I, I pray for Jared as he prepares to uh, deliver your word to us, and I, prepare that, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word. I, I, I ask for your blessing on this time of worship um, as we come together corporately and lift your name on high and make much of your name. I pray that we would be humbled on this day. 
um, and that we would walk away from this day um, with a new awareness um, an awe of you and who you are and an awareness of uh, the tools that you've given us uh, to be conformed to your son's image. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.